listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the podcast, the flagship podcast of Pharmacist United for Truth and Transparency. Pharmacist United for Truth and Transparency is the only registered 501c3 nonprofit wholly dedicated to exposing the hard truths about pharmacy benefit managers and how their greed-centered profit-at-any-cost business practices are driving up drug prices and healthcare premiums while reducing consumer choice and endangering patient access. The podcast is brought to you by Datascan Pharmacy Software. Datascan Pharmacy Software is a family-owned and operated independent software solutions provider for independent pharmacies nationwide. Learn more at datascanpharmacy.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Monique Whitney. I'm the Executive Director of Pharmacist United for Truth and Transparency. And with me is my amazing co-host, our Vice President, Lauren Young. Hi, Lauren. Hi. How's everything going where you are today? Great day in Illinois and pharmacy as usual. <laughs> For a second, I can't. I'm like, are you are you being sarcastic? Because actually, you've yes. got a really good bill that your Department of Insurance has put out. And I know that we're excited to see how that goes. That's right. We're in the beginning of legislative session here for the spring session of Illinois. So Things are hopefully going to be looking up. And as many of our listeners know, I like to watch as many legislative hearings from across the country that I can. Last week, we had a couple in D.C., and then I'm staying tuned to some of the other states that we're going to see progress in. I'm absolutely sure of it this year. So it actually could be a great day in Illinois for pharmacy, which would be amazing. All right. So Lauren, we have a couple of fabulous guests today. One is uh, a frequent visitor on the podcast, Greg Reibold, Vice President for American Pharmacy Cooperative. Greg, hi. How are you? Hey, Monique. I'm doing really well. I appreciate being here as always. Uh, we're always happy to have you in APCI. And I'm just going to start for a second and say, and I apologize the way that I skip over the name like that. It's actually American Pharmacy Cooperative Incorporated, right? Yeah. You know how it is that when you're in a world of nothing but acronyms, everything is like, you know, APCI and PUD, <laughs> and DER and DIR and, you know, so, but I think the people listen to this podcast, they, they already know that. And of course, uh, someone we've been very excited for a while to have on the podcast, Joe Shields, who is the founder and managing director of Transparency Rx, which is a coalition of transparent PBMs. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Monique. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Greg. Excited to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you guys and uh, looking forward to this conversation. We are very, very much looking forward to it, too. So, Joe, you may or may not know that at one time, PUT had a listing of transparent PBMs on our website. It was one of the things in our early days when we were campaigning for employer education. We are very, very big on the concept that you can have a pharmacy benefit manager do your claims and do your processing and do this in a way which works for the health plan and for the employer. But we ended up taking that page down a couple of years ago because we started seeing that our transparent PBMs were dropping like flies and being absorbed and, and merging with other PBMs. So we ended up taking that down. And for a little while, we were... We were not so sure that we were going to see an emergence of transparent PBMs. And along came you and your coalition. <laughs> so we're excited about that. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about Transparency Rx and, and you and, and how this organization came to be. Yeah. So, one, again, thank you for letting me be here and excited to be part of this. Um, and folks like Greg Rybal and APCI, I would sort of credit with a lot of the early thinking that went into the, the need or demand for a coalition like Transparency Rx, partly because a, a lot of the CEOs that ultimately are now represented in the work that we do came out of community pharmacy, are pharmacists themselves. And so I think a lot of our DNA reflects that, right? The, the shared values with that. Last year, I think it was last year, Greg, you can correct me later if I'm wrong, but I was able to speak at the APCI conference and I'm pretty sure I'm the only PBM representative to ever be at an APCI conference without having fruit thrown at me or um, correct, um, correct on both fronts, Joe. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, but the, the sort of origin story of Transparency RX, I had been doing work in space for a number of years, sort of in coordination and coalition with folks like Greg, 
particularly around NADAC reporting and trying to advocate for mandatory reporting to NADAC, you know, in, in sort of prior iterations going back to the Trump administration and the sort of early days of the Biden administration, as well as other works in sort of the commercial market. And the issue was always the same, where sort of access to data and information, when you were trying to offer alternatives or, you know, a sort of better model, in my opinion, to plans or labor unions or small businesses and local job creators, was always restricted and, and sort of limited in terms of the ability to even, you know, offer an analysis or um, have a meaningful conversation. And on the policy issues around drug pricing reform, groups like, you know, PCMA and AHIP were always against the sort of policy positions, frankly, that most of the clients that I had worked with were interested in seeing supported. And their values weren't ultimately reflected in groups like that, that there wasn't a voice or a vessel or a conduit for that type of work. And so over a year ago, I started having some conversations. And I like to say I sort of dated CEOs before we got married or sort of engaged with a lot of the executives of pass-through PDMs that have been in the market. I think there's some bias in the market that they think transparent PDMs have only been around for a year or two. And Greg Reibold and Joe Shields created them last month. But the truth is, like our oldest member is over 25 years old. Companies like Navitas have been at this for over a decade plus in partnership with the state of Wisconsin, going back to its early sort of DNA. We're at now eight members, 15 to 16 million covered lives. If we were a PBM, we'd be the fourth largest PBM in the country, which I think is significant. And the company sort of came together around a sort of set of principles, a set of shared values that they had more in common than they had even other competitors then distinguished them or differentiated themselves, largely because larger PBMs and big PBMs, particularly the vertically integrated ones, are driving a business model that is sort of antithetical to the type of approach that transparency have taken in the marketplace where they're relying on a disclosed flat fee. They've had a strong rapport, if not direct relationship, you know, with community pharmacies having been pharmacists themselves. They're advocating and championing things like bans on spread, even delinking, right, in terms of an approach to sort of untether and unbundle the price of prescription drugs to the cost of medicine. Obviously, you know, all the sort of disclosure requirements that you're seeing play out at the state and national level, I think we've been supportive of. And so when we think about transparency, to one of the things, uh, you know, that you were saying prior to the podcast launching, I think for us, it's not just about out sort of reporting requirements and disclosure and, you know, what people know about drug pricing, but it's also about market realignment. It's also about competition and choice. And that's what fundamentally we're trying to drive at, right? That this is an opportunity to really transform the market and open it up so that there is an 80% market share at the end of the day, and that employers uh, and local job creators have a bit more of options, you know, in terms of their approach to their drug spend than they do right now. And you're seeing that movement in the market already. The average transparent PBM, you know, saves 15 to 20% against when they go head to head against their larger competitors. You saw probably last week or in the last two weeks, uh, Rightway Healthcare, our newest member, just signed on Tyson's Food as the first Fortune 50 company to adopt a transparent PBM. So we're really excited about where the market appears to be headed with a caveat that all those victories, all that success is really hard won, and there's a lot of obstacles still in our place, uh, and we don't underestimate what large competitors may do to sort of coerce results in their favor. Um, so we're fighting hard to make sure that the landscape begins to change and that there's meaningful reform advanced and that markets are opened up uh, in meaningful ways, hopefully in the coming days and years ahead. Joe, can you repeat that? <laughs> I wrote it all down. I have it all down. Uh, very. <laughs> that was very well. Oh, that's pretty good. You like that? So. Yeah, Greg, did you have um, anything you wanted to add to that? Monique, if I could just jump in and say, you know, from an advocacy perspective, have just been thrilled to see Transparency RX emerge and the work that that Joe is doing. They're doing it at a really, really high level at the federal level. Joe, I don't want to speak for you. I think we're going to see you guys make some impact at the state level as well. But they are are really shaping policy discussions at, a, I would say, the highest level that, that could be done. And in a really, really short time, which is it's credit to Transparency RX and, and credit to Joe 
But from a community pharmacy perspective, a lot of the things that we've been advocating for for years at the state level and federal level, what you hear is the large PBMs come in and say, oh, my God, the sky would fall and premiums would go through the roof and transparency would would drive drug prices up, all of these things. And lo and behold, here's this organization with PBMs that are committed to transparency. And what they can demonstrate over and over again is that a lot of the things that community pharmacy has been advocating for has been a canary in the coal mine for does in fact save money. And that's a really powerful thing when you've got large PBMs trying to kind of morph the truth and and go down to state capitals or go to DC and say, oh my God, this transparency is going to increase costs. And you get an organization like Transparency Rx who can come down and say, in fact, it's going to lower costs. And we know because this is the way we've been operating and we're saving our clients money. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Spot on. Yeah, Greg. So if you could repeat that as well, that would, that would be fantastic. There's no way. There is no way. <laughs> no, I just, so I want to just jump in then on that. So I'll be the third person now to jump in on this point. But I, I think what you're saying is so incredibly important because, you know, Joe, what stood out to me was a couple of things. One was that if Transparency Rx was a single PBM, you'd be the fourth largest PBM. You know, right now we're at this time in our country where, you know, seven years ago, nobody knew what a pharmacy benefit manager was. Now right. we're in a place where we're seeing these employers like Tyson, um, many, many employers, right, are starting to ask questions and look for these alternatives. But here you are, you know, a group of transparent PBMs, which, and it might be great, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, just to take a moment to define what we mean when we say a transparent PBM, I'll let you do that. But here we have you doing this good work, but now we've got the phrase PBM sort of associated with shadowy, bad, greedy middlemen, and with good cause, by the way. You know, yeah. not. How do you see the transparent PBMs working in that kind of environment? Yeah, I mean, it's challenging and complicated to be candid. I think from a branding standpoint, we were just with one of those sort of leading senators last week, and he raised this point with us in terms of you know, just sort of people's aptitude and sort of understanding of a PBM and where the sort of good guy PBM writing calling us. But to me, transparency are fundamentally a different product or a service than PBMs, right, or traditional PBMs. Certainly related to sort of the, the reliance on spread pricing that traditional PBMs focus on, the use of, at best, diplomatically sort of disingenuous relationships with brokers um, and other things that they use to sort of um, direct the, the market in your place. The other reality is to pick up on both the points that you guys were making, meaning Greg and Monique, right? Like, is there's not a lot of growth happening there. I mean, you look at the sort of data points and it's relatively flat of what you're seeing among the big PBMs that they're trading plans at the end of the day, but you're not seeing the sort of organic growth that we've seen from all our members who, no matter what year they're in, in terms of their development, I think continue to see success and, and greater growth and adoption, particularly by local job creators who have found the approach of large PBMs so disingenuous and so unreliable. It's just not somebody at the end of the day more and more of them want to partner with. I mean, there's one point about the impact on savings and cost if you're, if you're a small business and you're worried about that and what your drug spend is going to be, that the data is just really, really bad when you look about the approach relying on spread pricing. I mean, we can get into the details here, but you know, you look at the cost of generics and what's happened there that divorces any analysis of what big PBMs like to do and finger point at pharma for that. But generic pricing has gone up significantly, right, over, over, over years at this point. But the only meaningful explanation for that is the practices of big PBMs. But the other reality is just the reliability and sort of trustworthiness of who your partner is. And I, I would suspect that you would have employers or job creators say that even if our prices are going to go up, that the fact that we could get a straight answer out of the, the folks that are supposed to be administrating and managing our PBMs, and it doesn't seem that we're, we're not given candid advice or candid counsel, right? That is, from what I've seen, at least in the marketplace, as valuable as there is about the, the intent of transparent PBMs to drive down costs. So there is that sort of partnership, I think, model that we're offering, you know, in terms of the approach that our members are taking in the market as a hundred percent pass through, you know, as a as a model that is based on a sort of D-link philosophy, right? Where 
there's a flat fee and fees are always disclosed and knowable and reliable. Um, you don't see the same reliability um, from one corner pharmacy to the next as a result of that. And Greg and I have talked about that in sort of policy environments and the like. So again, it really is sort of two different types of businesses, even as we sort of ch share the same acronym um, to degree. So that's probably worth thinking about overall in terms of you know where the market's headed and what role that we're going to have as hopefully market share grows for transparency over time. So Joe, I have a question for you on that respect. I know you kind of touched on it during the spread pricing comment you made, but I know that a lot of the hearings that I listen to, a lot of the discussions that I'm in with other pharmacy owners, they talk about the pass-through model that yeah. Transparency RX has really embraced and tried to put forward that this is important. It is not just about the spread pricing. It, it's a lot more than that. And so we're hearing pushback from the terrible big three PBMs that everyone loves to hate in this podcast and uh, across America right now. But what could you say when those three PBMs claim that they're already doing the pass-through model and the savings that they're showing their clients are important because they're already doing that. And I know that that sometimes trips up legislators because they're being told that they're already offering that. So high level, good marketing or creative marketing or nuanced marketing, you know, isn't transparency. High level takeaway, right? There's, there's a difference between sort of realigning a business model and being invested in and dedicated to a transparent model and a realignment, then there is a press release by CBS that dusts off old concepts and tries to drive, which they acknowledge sort of in their investment call when they announced, you know, I think it was in the Q4 of last year, but there's, you know, so-called sort of new transparent model that they're adopting and, and trying to approach. What they didn't say is one, you know, they made clear a lot of what they were trying to do is drive resources towards their specialty pharmacy, which should be a cue to folks about what their actual motivation is. The second thing they didn't say is, well, what's your basis of transparency going to be? Are you going to disclose the benchmark that you're utilizing to determine price? Are you going to rely on something like NADAC or some other thing so that the buyer of your services or who you're partnering with actually knows what the basis of true price is? No, is the answer, right? Like they're, they're going to still rely on sort of still antiquated metrics and measures, right? That are quote unquote proprietary. They're not going to tell you as to how they arrive on price. They're still going to bundle it with fees and administrative costs that aren't really relevant to the cost of the drugs. So I don't really see much new with that. And, and I, I would say to one of the points that you made, I think there is a challenge to make sure we're educating policymakers enough or business owners so that they can ask those questions. Look, large competitors, large PBMs have been incredibly creative and incredibly persuasive at sort of driving their view of the market, right, in ways that ultimately allow them to sort of retain business. I, I give them credit for that. And, you know, they remain to, to do so. I just think a lot of it is so built on a sort of house of cards that when you can ask sort of intelligent points, uh, and questions, right? It falls apart very, very, very quickly. They don't have great answers for it. They're not particularly persuasive when you're able to sort of point those type of things out. Yeah. And Especially I, when they're being cross-examined by folks like Greg Rybal. So <laughs> I would say, I think Joe center punched that, right? And the other thing I'd, I'd say to that, Lauren, is that the data tells a different story, right? It's it's easy to get up at a hearing and say, oh, this is this is an offering that we have and we're transparent. But over and over and over, whether it's, you know, state data, whether it's commercial data, whether it's, you know, comparisons to Mark Cuban cost plus, whether it's three access reports or MedPAC reports, right? The data tells a different story. And the story that the data tells is that the large PBMs are manipulating prices and they're manipulating prices in ways that cost patients more money, that cost taxpayers more money, that cost employers more money. And of course, while simultaneously, you know, abusing community pharmacy as well, which I know isn't the subject of today, right? But the data tells a different story. So it's really easy for folks to get up in a hearing and have a talking point or have a, a marketing line to employers, but the data tells the tale. 
And just to touch on something else that Joe said, you, right now we're not seeing a lot of, we're seeing explosive growth in profits for the large PBMs because they continue to fine tune how they manipulate drug prices, but we're not seeing explosive growth in terms of market share, right? They already have massive market share, but the hope is that, and I know Putt's been a leader in educating employers, which I think is awesome. And I think there's lots of great work to do there, but the hope is that as these more and more reports come out, and more and more data analyses come out, and more employers start to open their eyes and realize that, hey, wait a minute, we've been sold a bill of goods here, and there are transparent PBMs that we can switch to that are going to save us, Joe, I, I don't know the number, 15 20%. And I think we've seen examples where it was even significantly upwards of that, right? So when you're a large employer, and you can save 20% by moving to a transparent PBM, holy mackerel, right? I mean, that's, that's really, really compelling. And when you do that, and you're with a transparent PBM, the price of a drug is the price of a drug, right? The, the most recent three-axis study did a deep dive. And one of, one of the deep dives was on a single drug in a single day. So same drug, same PBM, same pharmacy, five or six different price points ranging from $9 to $96, all at the same pharmacy, right? The prices are being made up. And the more we can get those stories out, I think the more opportunity there is for transparent PBMs you know, to, get, to continue to grow. And, the, and one other point on that, just, I mean, two sort of distinctions, right? One on the industrial side, you know, the other sort of on the policy side, but most, if not all, transparent PBMs, right? One of their front and center sort of offerings is enhanced or empowered audit rights, right? So you don't have to take their word for it. You're going to have an audit that's going to show you the data. It's going to show you the numbers. And you're going to have a cost analysis. So what you're buying or what they sold to you to buy is verified at some level. I mean, that is the essence of sort of transparency. The other thing on the broader sort of data trends, right, these aren't sort of problems on the margins in terms of how much large PDMs are making. Yeah. It, it's not as if it's like, well, they made 2% above something or there appears to be some gamesmanship that's creating, you know, some revenue share for them that might be able to argue, you know, is reasonable. I mean, you look at the Nephron report and other sort of data points out there, I mean, it's in the billions of dollars. And some of those estimates may be conservative as to how much gouging and inflation you're seeing in the marketplace. So there's a problem in Denmark, right? Like there's, it's very clear on that front. And, and to Greg's point, right, the data makes that crystal, crystal clear you know, if people can sort of capture it. And I, and I think, look, we have to drive the market towards the point of, it's not probably good enough for any of us to sort of identify that there's a problem. I think everybody knows that's a problem. Part of the paradigm shift we're trying to cultivate is to make sure that the procurement model shifts and the, and the market choices shift. The average procurement process, you know, is still reflective of a traditional model. There's a lot of brokers that are still aligned for lots of different reasons, right, with large PBMs. So sort of getting at those issues, addressing those issues head on so that employers can make meaningful choices and have meaningful choice, I think is key to our agenda sort of going forward, right? That, that there is that level of education understanding um, and that there's optionality in a meaningful way as opposed to you know, what's a proxy choice based on good marketing by large PBMs. Love that point. And to that point, you know, I, I've seen so often in like state bids you know, where essentially it's it's already baked in, right? That to be eligible to bid to get the contract, you have to own a specialty pharmacy or you have to own mail order pharmacy and you have to have 24 hour, right? So, so many of sort of the bad practices and the vertical integrated exploitation is literally blocking out transparent PBMs who, who maybe don't have some of these conflicts of interest, right? And the other thing, and Joe, I, I think you touched on this, but another thing that I think there's a lot of policy work to be done is even when you get employers who want to make that leap, what we find is large PBMs that may be vertically integrated with insurers, the employer is blocked, right? They can't, they can't even hire the PBM or get the PBM to give a quote, even if they want to, because of the vertical integration between the insurer and the PBM, the transparent PBMs are oftentimes don't even have a chance to play, even, even when the employer wants to go and use a different PBM that's not affiliated with the insurer. Yeah, if I, if I can get dorky in terms of inside baseball terms, but I think your audience will appreciate and understand it, right? Like our competition isn't the basis of sort of carve in, carve out. It's a competition about coercive carve in versus carve out. 
I think yeah. if it were actually a choice of carving versus carve out, my experience tells me, the experience of our members tell me that generally speaking, in a disproportionate number of times, I think we would win. I think our, our members would win, but all the elements Greg laid out, the things I'm talking about, the sort of artificial benchmarks that exist of you need to have past performance, even though when the past performance related state contract you know is bad or resulting in fraud or malfeasance in the case of Ohio's, all that stuff should be thrown out the window. And you should be designing procurements and models to assure that you're creating you know, effective and efficient models that I think reflect the values of where state decision makers appear to want to be heading. And a lot of those are reflective of a transparent model, not a traditional model. And I would say, because a lot of our companies are younger and more dynamic and just the DNA of who our leaders are, generally speaking, you know, there's a heavier investment in technology that's more robust and dynamic than what we're seeing in the, the sort of judicial market of reliance not on you know, DOS-based computers that are punching, punching out punch cards, but, you know, are cloud-based and have security and address the speed and agility that you want to see in a modern market as we're trying to drive down drug spend. Monique, Joe's too humble to say it, but if, if you listen and kind of read between the lines, I think, I think what he's saying is that the executives of the transparent PBMs and the executives of the transparent PBM organizations are basically significantly better looking and cooler than the executives of the large PBMs. I heard that too. I 100% I, I agree. And I'm just for a moment, very sad that people can't visually look in on this podcast to see exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I am fascinated, Joe, by, by what your organization and your members are doing. In a past life, my pre-putt life, I worked at a government funded entity. I worked, I was a public information officer at a very, very large community college. And I learned in my role about government procurement, right? So sure. for them, it was a huge process, even buying the simplest things. But what I learned in that was that they also relied on outside vendors to educate them, right? And so I imagine what's been going on for the longest time, whether it's a government entity or it's a, you know, an Intel or a, you know, United Auto Workers or somebody like that, there's been an outside entity, the trade lobby for the largest PBMs, perhaps the largest PBMs themselves, perhaps their largest insurers with their brokers, you know, uh, guiding the process, but they've been not educating, they've just been misleading these organizations into purchasing benefits models that ultimately fund the MCO fund fund the PBM right another another uh, acronym to throw in there. I'm intrigued that you're going to the market. We think here at Putt that it's time to go back to the market and let the market start making decisions because at some point there's only so much the government can do, right? Like I've sat in so many stakeholder meetings where I've heard some lobbyists for the other side say, "Oh, but this is price fixing. Oh, but this is you know insert thing. It's not here, right?" In the end, it's still going to be the market that makes the decision. The buyer makes the decision. Why do you think Tyson went with your member, the, the transparent PBM who got that contract? What is it that you think, it, and I realize I'm asking you to speculate, but why did they make that choice? What do you think motivated them? You know, just reading the public comments and talking to Rightway Healthcare, who's our newest member, to the coalition, and we'll we'll do some earned media on that, amplify it. I mean, one right way, kind of consistent with a model that a lot of transparents have adopted, came in and said, well, we're going to guarantee you savings. We're going to guarantee you 15% on our drug spend. We're not going to control costs. We're going to reduce costs. So that's a wake-up call, right? <laughs> You've got an employer at 150K plus covered lives, you know, and you're trying to compete in a changing market, right, with a variety of costs and you care about the well-being and wellness of your employees, the ability to sort of capture those dollars and redirect them or reinvest them in sort of significant ways. I think that's that's something that immediately, you know, will catch the attention of employers. And I think most of our members have a similar approach where they're able to level set a certain expectation in terms of cost retainment. And they're not, you know, rebates can be sort of sugar candy and eye candy at times in terms of the negotiations that happen between large PBMs and transparent PBMs. But at the end of the day, on the back end, I don't think large PBMs and 
you know, vertically integrated ones are guaranteeing any type of savings. They're just, they're sort of repositioning the way in which they're going to use rebates. And, you know, sometimes that's attractive employers for lots of different reasons. Our hope is that a model in which you're actually reducing costs and producing savings is a better one. Um, so that was certainly part of the narrative. And then just based on the public comments that I saw, and I haven't talked to Tyson yet, but I assume at some point we will just to get a flavor for why they're champions of this work and so encouraged by it working with Rightway is I think they were pretty strident in what I alluded to earlier about the reliability and trustworthiness of the relationship, that that really mattered to them, that having a partner that you could go to for answers and not jockeying or circumspect even manipulation, right, that, you know, ultimately doesn't really feel that comfortable. If you're administering your health benefits and you're getting pressure from the C-suite about how to reduce costs, and you go to the folks that you think are experts, and you go to them repeatedly, and they don't appear to give you direct, candid answers, and the costs keep going up, that's not a great position to be in, I would think, right, internal to a company. Um, and I applaud Tyson's, frankly, for having the courage to move on, right, from the PBM that they were utilizing, because th those are hard choices. There are sort of longstanding relationships and the brokers and other people that were involved, right? It is a significant breakthrough. I don't want to discount how hard won that type of business is and the choices that employers make as a result of that. Great notices, but I've had, I mean, dozens and dozens of conversations with union leaders and employers who say they're dissatisfied with their PBM and ultimately they stay with them for a host of different reasons. You know, that's part of the work that we're trying to do to, and I think what you guys are driving at too, your education and the work that you're doing at a bunch of levels to just to sort of move the market, right? And and have the market ready for, for what's being adopted increasingly at an accelerated level. So then a question for you about that. So you mentioned earlier about your group could be the fourth largest PBM. If all the independent pharmacies in the country were under one brand, they would be the largest pharmacy chain. There's 19,000 independent pharmacies in the country. Um, I have a two, a two point question for you. So the first is, how do you see the relationship between transparent PBMs and independent community pharmacies working? Do you see, do you see an opportunity for there or a role for pharmacies in those networks? That's the first question. And the second one I, I want to ask will be more specific to Tyson. Yeah, I mean, our average member, right, and each of them have their own lines of business and relationships they've established. But I think for the most part, our members, and, and some are more integrated than this than not, we've got one member that is based on the longest standing family pharmacy in the country out of Iowa, right? But I do think there's an intentionality here where supporting community pharmacies, supporting independent pharmacies is a value proposition. I don't want to say regardless of cost, but certainly there is an intentionality there that drives the viewpoint of the way transparency have operated and encouraged the market. The other reality is, is, is sort of a shifting dynamic is, look, a lot of the communities where transparency are being adopted are competitive markets, particularly in sort of urban communities across the country, right, or rural communities, right, where you're seeing more and more the proliferation of pharmacy deserts and other sort of dynamics in place where community pharmacies, well, the large pharmacies are competing more against Amazon and mail delivery and concerned more about that. And so they're shuttering the storefronts they have in those markets. And the independent pharmacies are, are the sort of last resort or the only resort for a lot of community members, particularly seniors and other folks who need to have a storefront, need to have access to those type of facilities in meaningful ways. So from a business line or a relationship standpoint, I think that's you know, one of the other reasons I think those lines or, or channel partnerships are so critical to the work that we're doing as well overall in terms of, and it's not to say like, look, we're modernizing. A lot of our members have, as I said, very smart and very well-designed relationships with a Mark Cuban or other folks that, you know, might rely on mail structures. But I think the value proposition of independent pharmacies, sort of what they're doing, just as a pillar of a community, right, is, is something that I think our members take seriously. A lot of them came out of owning pharmacies. And so, you know, sort of understanding that, I think that's not anything that's going away anytime soon and will hopefully grow and, and, and be part of this improving dynamic in the marketplace. 
No, that's great. That's very encouraging, particularly because it is a time, it's a time of change. And there's a lot of shuffling going on now between the way that things grew to be with these large non-transparent PBMs and the pharmacies that they own and the, you know, offshoring with rebates and things that they do. We're now thankfully starting to see questions being asked and things are shuffling. But even with that said, as tactfully as I can put this, it's my understanding that community pharmacies were not included as a preferred or as as a any kind of first tier pharmacy in the Tyson deal. And so how can, in your opinion, I'm asking you purely for your opinion and speculation, how can the profile of community pharmacies as viable, you know, places for patients to get their medication and healthcare, how can we raise the profile so that as large employers like a Tyson come online with a transparent, their people have the opportunity to go to a community pharmacy besides like a CVS or a Walgreens or a Rite Aid or whatnot? Yeah, I, I would say, look, more educating like this. I mean, all of our members have different business models, so I, I can't really speak to you know what was negotiated or agreed to with Right Way and Tyson's in terms of that and the choices they made there. But generally speaking, I would just sort of reiterate the point I made that a lot of our members in their DNA and ultimately what they agree to with uh, the employer, you know, when they sign on a line of business. And it's a range. I mean, you're seeing more and more health systems, as an example, um, who have large regional presences, right, adopt transparent PBMs, one recently in Philadelphia, other ones coming in other parts of the country. So I, I think the elevation of the importance of community pharmacies is part of that, I would suspect, would remain a priority and important imperative of, of our membership, right? But when it doesn't exist or it's not happening, I think with some open dialogue and education there, there's nothing wrong with that. We're 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 not coming at this with a point of view of being oppositional to the needs or demands of community pharmacy, even where we may not agree on everything. I do think we'll be a better listener and a better partner at the end of the day than what they've traditionally seen out of large PBMs, right? Because of all the reasons I've given. So and I that's very well said. And I again appreciate you taking that question. And, sure. and answering it as elegantly as you did. Yeah, it's it's really- If it doesn't work out, it's all rival's fault. So I always have- <laughs> Well, it's not that always the case, right? I have that parachute that when in doubt, blame Greg Rival for any of the problems with being false. All right, Greg. So it's going to be all your I, fault. Just so I you just know. heard I just heard Joe publicly commit to NADAC plus 12 across <laughs> market channels for- no, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Now, I think uh, the job is for all of us to work together in the market. For the longest time, I think, you know, people have loved and taken their community pharmacies for granted. And and as we have seen the emergence of pharmacy deserts, which weirdly enough tends to be more in the urban areas, even than in the rural areas, I, I think it's been a good opportunity for for all of us in the industry to work together to to try to elevate the issues and find ways that we can you know, work together on these things. Yeah, and, and Monique, if I can make a sort of quasi-political point on that, you know, look, I do think, and Greg and I have been working sort of earnestly, particularly at the federal level, to educate policymakers on that. But I do think seeing more and more champions, particularly in rural and urban, you know, districts, communities, talk about PBM reform and why it's important, particularly from the perspective of community pharmacy. I, look, I think... There are a lot of times where the PBM debate just defaults to conversation of drug makers versus, you know, the sort of boogeyman or something else, right? And certainly among some members of Congress, I think that's the only talking point that they want to talk about. There's a host of issues, particularly that you raise, you know, the deserts that exist in urban neighborhoods, um, the impact that corruption, malfeasance, and poor pricing and poor choicing made on Medicaid plans. You look at Ohio, right, uh, of what was happening there and the Attorney General, you know, going forward now with antitrust action against its PBMs. I'd love to see more members of Congress point those issues out and have a discernment and understanding of, of that than falling short sometimes and defaulting toward a sort of big pharma narrative, right? And it's not to excuse the, the bad behavior of pharma. It's just to say a cogent analysis around PBM reform needs to be a cogent analysis about PBM reform and not what I've seen which is at times a sort of case tree, sort of gamesmanship between 
you know, one trade association, one pig trade association, pharma being one versus the other, AHIP and PCMA being the others, right? Like, I, I just, I think we need to have dialogues and conversation about the impact and the problems of a spread pricing model versus transparency, if we want to get to sort of resolution in healthcare. And that's what we've been trying to drive that narrative. By the way, you know, as much as I was just sort of critical of members of Congress, the actions of Congress, for the most part, when you look at that issue in, in recent history, right, the vote totals of the split on that haven't been close. You're seeing more and more members on both sides of the aisle support reform. And these aren't close vote counts. Uh, the, the Senate 1339, which we didn't talk the commercial market, I mean, came out of uh, the Health Committee by more than a two to one margin. Last week, you saw the, the House Oversight Committee, led by Congressman James Comer, um, move on delinking. Right um, by substantial margin, so I do think a lot of times we we, we like to talk about the design, divisiveness in Washington and other parts of the country, but the reality is, and the data sort of shows, is that more and more people are sort of getting on the bandwagon or or heading on the march that community pharmacists sort of broke through around PBM reform, right? And I and I don't I think we should recognize that and try to build on it um, in terms of next efforts. Yeah. You know, to, to that point, I, I would say, and I, Monique, Lauren, you know, I, I think we've talked about this several times and certainly probably on a, on a couple of podcasts as well, but certainly offline. But the track record is there, right? Like this is a bipartisan issue and we have seen leaders in very red states, leaders in very blue states reach across the aisle and work with the folks from, from the other party. And we have seen massive legislation passed at the state level. And when you look at the votes that are coming down on some of this PBM reform at the federal level, similar, right? You're, we're seeing sort of that bipartisan support. So I think that's a that's a really important point that Joe makes. But another important point Joe makes is there is still this narrative out there that hey, you've got big pharma set you know setting prices and driving prices up. And one of the things that that I've certainly been trying to be very deliberate about when having those conversations. And, and of course, when you're talking about brand name drugs and you're talking about rebates, that can get really complicated. But there again is massive data out there to look at generics and generics that have deflated or generics that have remained stable and massive pricing variability set by PBMs and massive increases. Uh, there was a three-act study, I guess now it's probably a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, that looked in Part D, largest PBM, uh, largest prescription drug plan, a period where the generic basket of drugs that were dispensed deflated 9.1%, and that PBM increased prices at the counter for patients by 51%. You can't blame pharma there, right? That is PBMs manipulating drug prices to the detriment of patients and to the detriment of taxpayers, and ultimately also to the detriment of pharmacies because they take all, all sorts of money back, VDAR fees, et cetera. And that's just one example. The examples are replete. We looked at another one recently. It was a stable generic drug, stable on NADAC, uh, less than $5 for a 12-month period. One PBM had 117 different price points from a few dollars up to $200 for that drug. Right, we're talking about massive pricing manipulation of generic drugs, and there's no drug manufacturer argument for the PBMs to even make there. That's why it's sort of like, don't look here, right? Sleight of hand. Don't look here. Look here. Don't look at what we're doing with generics. Look at these high list prices. And uh, I, I just think that it's an important point for all of us to drive home when we're talking with policymakers and they ask that question about, well, what about pharma? And again, I'm not here to whitewash pharma, but it's the PBMs that are manipulating prices at the counter to the detriment of patients, pharmacies, and taxpayers. And, and to the extent to which you know the audience or employers, I mean, the obvious question becomes: if they're going to rip off Uncle Sam, who has more purchasing power arguably than any other entity in the United States, and do it on generics <laughs> that have been you know in the market 20, 30 years and pricing is stabilized, what do you think they're going to do to you? What do you think they're doing to you? So, um, Joe. To that point, that 117 prescriptions uh, ranging from a couple dollars, two hundred dollars, that was that included the commercial market. So you're absolutely right, right? They're manipulating, and it's easier to get at the data from a governmental market, whether it's a state or Part D or Medicaid, Medicaid managed care. But the games are replete in the commercial market, and oftentimes when you do get glimpses behind that veil, the games are worse. Yeah, and so to the point on how that connects to maybe the nexus around reform, even though we fundamentally mean members of transparency 
RX for the most part just compete in commercial market. I mean, we see a nexus, we see a conduit between what happens in government markets and in commercial markets. And so from a policy standpoint, analytical standpoint, you know, we think the push for reform has to happen in both for lots of different reasons, right? There's there's savings that are accrued by doing both, but there isn't this sort of one-off analysis that you get to choose either government or commercial. You really have to be thinking about both in meaningful ways if there's going to be comprehensive reform. And candidly, I, I would say our members are a little concerned that, and this goes back to one of the earlier questions, Monique and Lauren, I think you asked, but the idea of what you know could be sort of skinny PBM reform, right? Or PBM reform light, right? Whatever the right uh, analogous is, or old Coke versus new Coke, pick an analogy you want, but like that version of facts, right? Where there's some half-tooth solution that Congress ultimately passed. We are worried about that undercutting local employers and transparent PBMs in terms of their competition in the market, because it'll bully big competitors to say, look, we're transparent now, see, we told you so. And there won't be this sort of type of attention to the malfeasance, the bad behavior, the type of misalignment um, that exists in the marketplace that you know have been worked on for a long time. And, and the political environment, the, the sort of market opportunity that exists, these opportunities don't grow on trees, right? So I do think the time to act is now, and it, and it has to be meaningful and comprehensive. And to that point, it has to be meaningful for community pharmacy as well. And so we're coming at it from different angles. But I know Monique and Lauren, we've talked about this as well. Community pharmacy has been sounding the alarm on the practices of large PBMs for a really long time. And what we're finding is there's a lot of policy solutions being advanced at the federal level, but not a lot of policy, solution, policy solutions that are going to protect community pharmacies from sort of the abusive practices of those large PBMs. So similar, di different angles I'm concerned, but, but I think similar there, right? Like if there's gonna be significant PBM reform, it, you know, it has to fix the problems that are out there and community pharmacy should figure centrally into that. Yeah, and Greg, I talked about this offline, but we, like even if the most comprehensive bill passes, right, we still view that as a sort of first step. I don't expect massive market shifts, right, if, if the most aggressive piece yeah. of reform bill gets adopted, I think that's going to take time and organically ferment um, litigation or other sort of hammers, maybe a better tool, frankly, to motivate employers around fiduciary duty than what Congress ultimately do to the point you were making a second ago, Monique, on that front, right? So we're mindful of that. And I think we're to the theme of, that's come up a few times on this podcast, Transparency Rx and APCI, we're thinking a lot about disclosure and data requirements and reporting requirements associated with data and what occurs around information blocking. So there's layers of next iterations of policy work that has to be done if the market is actually going to be driven by competition and choice. I agree with that. It, it does scare some community pharmacy owners about the first step not being big enough, because I think a lot of us have been in states where legislators have put forth a first step of PBM reform, whether that be licensure, regulation of PBMs, things like that. And the states are unable to enforce it because they are standing there like that Spider-Man meme with guns pointing at each other. I don't know if the Department of Insurance would enforce this, the Department of Commerce, you know, Health and Family Services. So it's a big game as to who would be enforcing it. And really, Oklahoma came out with their uh, now attorney general that took over for that, for their enforcement against CVS blatantly disrespecting their state PBM reform laws. So I think there's a lot of independent owners, especially listening and being vocal, and they have been able to keep their businesses running for several years, waiting for that second step to happen. And yeah, so and, and, trying to make right. that work for them. Yeah, and Warren, just the other point is like, look, you can look at the penalties that exist in any the proposed legislation or certainly that have been, you know, sort of drafted at the state level, right? I mean, a lot of these large PBMs, they just cost it into their bottom line at the end mm -hmm. of the day. There yeah. has been like that. Like did. Yeah, absolutely right. That's exactly what I was thinking of. So that, you know, that threat, right, has, even with the most aggressive policy language, just hasn't been enough. And I and I think, at least for our members who tend to be sort of small, small mid-cap PBMs, right, distinguishing between the capacity of what that would mean to a mid-cap PBM versus, you know, a global conglomerate like CBS or some of the large competitors, right, are really apples and oranges. 
as they're integrating videos and doing a bunch of things and driving data information offshore. And they've got buckets of specialty pharmacy, right? These are complex, aggressive companies, right? That are operating not even at a domestic scale, increasing at a global scale. And so I think having policymakers attuned to that and what they're willing to do as a result to address it, you know, is going to be really sort of next iteration of the work that hopefully we do together. Oh, absolutely. And I know you briefly talked about Ohio earlier and their fine that CVS had just, the Board of Pharmacy had just leveraged against one CVS location. And when the $250,000 fine came out, I know a lot of pharmacy owners in my multiple group texts were like, they took more NDIR fees out in my one store than that entire CVS being fined. And they had multiple board violations after multiple board visits. So I think that in order for owners to really see that there is some hope in the EBM reform and transparency being more than just uh, us putting all this blood, sweat, and tears in, I think I appreciate that there is Transparency Rx trying to fight for us on our side. We know that Greg Reibold, maybe APCI, has been in our corner for a while since we've been a super fan of his from the Georgia Pharmacy Association days. And so that's what we really are trying to find is other people in this industry that can help us validate the concerns that owners have had. And that's why we really appreciate, Joe, what your partners are doing and trying to get the word out that it's not just a crazy idea when people talk about that 15% return that they're able to see for employers on their drug spend, because that equates to more access to prescriptions. They're able to see that in less time lost for their employees. Those factors really matter in an economy that has a struggling workforce. So I think they'll yeah, be able to see that return on investment so much easier than they probably could have seen five plus years ago. Yeah, I do think like just look, we're relatively, we're the new kid on the block for, for better or worse in terms of the work that we want to do. But, and Greg said this at the beginning, I think, you know, in the coming months and in the next year, I think we want to be, you know, more aggressive, more intentional about state work. Certainly a lot of the theme of this conversation sort of industry, stakeholder work, right, is going to be an important aspect of what we do. The federal stuff, you know, when we started, we thought a lot of our work was going to be thinking about the Consolidated Appropriations Act and some target states that were working on PBM reform. And by March of last year, there was something like 43 PBM bills being contemplated by members of Congress. It was just a very different year as we got started. And so that's why we've leaned in as hard as we have on the federal landscape. It's not to say we don't care about state practices or, or approaches, right? In fact, a lot of our members with their own resources are doing that, you know, in, in varying degrees and thinking about, you know, what PBM reform should look like at the local level. So in terms of the coalition, I would say, yeah, if we can be a resource there and, you know, open up dialogues and be a good partner, I would welcome that. And you are not, and Transparency Rx is not a member of PCMA. Let's make that very, very clear. No, nor are any of our individual member companies. In fact, at least a few of them have gotten rejected. <laughs> That's the kind of rebels we appreciate here at Putt. We really like that kind of uh, truth they and transparency. Be, they didn't expect to be accepted, but the fact that they got rejected entirely, that, yeah, it's it's an interesting backstory there. So, it, well, uh, well members, that. I would say, you know, what I've been just tremendously pleased with is several things, but despite obviously vast difference in resources, Transparency RX has very much proved an effective counterweight to a lot of the PCMA talking points uh, in DC in the last 12 months. And it's a counterweight that just simply there was there was a void, right? What what large PBM said went in terms of projections and proclamations about rates and costs. And Transparency RX has, again, I think a large credit to Joe and of course the, the members and the view that they hold, but they have proven to be an effective counterweight. And that's so important to have and something that that we've needed for a long time. Yeah, and partly that is just reflected in, you know, Greg alluded to that policymakers, just like folks within industry, I think had real questions. And I think hopefully they have found the experience they've had with transparent PBMs. They're getting clearer and more deliberate answers, sort of regardless of where we land on them, even if it's not necessarily in our interest, we've tried to be 
a good and earnest, you know, sort of partner in that dialogue that my experience for what it's worth is that policymakers and staffers and sort of experts have appreciated that because look, the PBM market has been kept opaque and in the dark for obvious reasons, right? And so when you have folks that are trying to open that up and that up, shine a light on it, right? I do think there's value to that and it's appreciated and it allows people to make, again, informed decisions in a way that, you know, hopefully improves conditions for all of us and, and makes healthcare outcomes ultimately. I'm a, I'm a son of a nurse, right? Who spent 50 years of her life taking care of patients. So if we can do things to improve the outcome of patients and, and plans, right? That's something I, that's near and dear to my heart. So. So as we come to the end of the podcast, I would love to know what, what is next for Transparency Rx? What will you be doing this year? What goals, what, what would you like the listeners to know about what you're up to this year? You know, in the near term, I think, look, we are headstrong and focused on seeing what Congress is going to do, hopefully in the near term, but to get it right, right, to assure that's comprehensive, to assure it's effective. There are a lot of different variables, you know, that are playing out on that. There could be action as soon as March 8th when the next continuing resolution is up and budget decisions are made by Congress for last year's budget. It could bleed into the summer. Um, it could go after Election Day. So I don't think, you know, I don't really have a crystal ball on that in terms of what we want to do. But the, the other the other hub of work that I think we're thinking about is, is sort of how can we be, you know, a better innovator and, and educator, right, in, in key markets, both, as I said, sort of industry education so that how transparency work and what their value proposition is unpacked and employers can make better informed choices, particularly as they go into the spring, will be really, really critical to us. And then how that begins to inform the work that's happening at the state level. You've seen a number of governors, including the governor of Pennsylvania and a few others, right, sort of come forward of beginning to think about PBM reform in recent days. And I think I mean, Greg has been monitoring that, frankly, probably better than I have been, but we've seen more and more of that work continuing and, and happening. And I think we want to play a role and, and be a vessel in that in terms of, you know, sort of next steps and encouraging the growth in the marketplace, hopefully, is a byproduct of the work that we do. So there are more complicated, you know, challenges ahead that I won't get into, but certainly what does the GPO market look like related to PBMs, I think, is a big topic that we can say for a later day and top of mind for a lot of our members. I think Monique, you alluded to it earlier, but the migration of data information, the offshoring of patient information, you know, US seniors being housed in an Ireland IT system or a Switzerland IT system doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense to me. Um, but that's that's a sort of reality and a game and a trap that's being laid by large PBMs right now. That that I think is going to be an ongoing fight, an ongoing conversation we're going to have to have in our debate next year may be about a different three-letter acronym and we'll move from PBMs to GPOs. So, you know, we'll see. I, I think there's there's lots of sort of variables in place in, in the next few weeks and kind of coming months that will drive the work that we do. Well, that's, that's great. That's a perfect, perfect answer. Greg, anything for you? Well, again, we're, we're going to be at the federal level always watching from a vertical integration perspective, trying to engage in the F with the FTC in that regard, uh, closely monitoring the 6B study, and just, just advocating for pharmacy to figure centrally in any meaningful reform and advocating for payment reform. At the state level, we're seeing a lot of new practices crop up. Um, you know, All of the attention on large PBMs has not dissuaded them from engaging in new and duplicitous practices. And so we're hoping to see in several states uh, in the Southeast and hopefully elsewhere, right, some really innovative reform that looks to rein in some of the more abusive practices of the large PBMs. That's awesome. And we will be 100% behind both of you in the efforts that you're making. And we appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. Joe, before we close out, one thing I should probably ask you to do, could you give our listeners the website address for Transparency Rx? Sure. Actually, that's that's um, very helpful because <laughs> there are other transparents out there that have similar URLs. But ours is transparent www.transparency-rx.com. So it's T-R-A-N-S-P-A-R-E-N-C-Y-R-X.com. Excited to have people learn more about us and they can reach us there and happy to follow up. 
with folks as they're thinking about issues and, and hopefully partnering with everybody here on future work. Wonderful. Thank you both so much. For all of you who are listening, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next month on the podcast. This episode of the podcast has been brought to you by DataScan Pharmacy Software. As a family-owned and operated independent pharmacy software solutions provider, DataScan Pharmacy Software is a proud independent small business supporting independent pharmacies. To learn more about DataScan Pharmacy Software, visit their website at datascanpharmacy.com. For more information on Pharmacist United for Truth and Transparency and how you can help end PBM abuse of our healthcare system, visit our website at truthrx.org.